Blog Talk Radio. It's Sunday evening, and welcome to Pause I Am Radio. Your hosts for tonight's show are Robert Brenning and Jack McEnroe. They'll be taking your calls and speaking with a different guest each week. You're encouraged to call in and share some of your life experiences with us. The number to call is 347-215-9442. That number again, 347-215-9442. Welcome to Pause I Am Radio. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Pause I Am Radio. I'm your host, Robert Brining. Tonight, I am joined by my fabulous co-host, Jack McEnroth. How are you doing, Jack? <laughs> I think every time I'm on, I've, been, I've, I've been, been gone for a while, but every time that intro gets more, like, wacky. <laughs> it's like a bad night at the club. <laughs> totally. So, like, techno intro. It's funny. Yeah, we'll be working on fixing that upcoming up. But uh, how you been, man? I feel like it's been forever since I've had John. I know. I've been kind of crazy. So I did the gay games in Cologne. I've just been traveling a ton. And then I had to go. I'm probably forgetting something because my brain is like a Swiss cheese right now. But then I went to, my brother got married. So I had to go to Seattle for four days, five days. I was the best man. And then I went, went immediately from that to do on-camera fashion stuff for Logo. So I did three days of fashion week, and then I left literally the next day and went to the U.S. Conference on AIDS in Orlando, which was, I think, six days with Merck's Living Positive by Design, and I did a bunch of TV shows down there and spoke a bajillion times, I don't even know, and we had a really cool booth and at the conference, and um, I think I got back on the Friday? Oh, I, mean, I know, and I was crazy delayed from that because you guys had a tornado or something. We had a tornado or a tornado warning or and we were on the we were on the runway and there and I'm on JetBlue watching TV and I can see the news that says tornado in New York and I'm like oh shit I'm like I, we are so not leaving and immediately as as I was watching it the pilot got on the little over you know the intercom and was like um, we're gonna be sitting here for about three hours so yeah we finally went back into the gate all deplaned and then got back on two two hours later and it was not cute but. What else? I'm back. I'm alive. It's all good. The conference is excellent. Yeah, that's great. I, actually, I was going to go to that conference, but I wasn't. I, I got a scholarship, but when you get a scholarship to go to that, you have to put the money out ahead of time, and then you get it reimbursed. Oh, okay. So I was like, ah, forget it. I can't go because I didn't have the money to put up in the first place. That's why I applied for a scholarship. So I'm going to try to get to that next year because I heard it's a lot of fun. Yeah, I mean, I, see, the thing is I'm working the whole time, so right. I, I don't get to, I mean, I'm in the um, the part. There's two parts. There's like, um, well, it's different every year wherever the location is. But there's there's presentations each. You know, all every hour. I think different. You know, pharmaceutical companies and different organizations and whatnot do presentations. So last year we had that panel with Angina and um, Shirley Ralph from the Dream from Dreamgirls and right, right. Clive Jones and whatever. It was amazing. And so this year actually we did. Um, we just didn't do that. We didn't do a session. We um, we actually made a Living Positive by Design AIDS quilt, and we had people, which actually, it's funny because I didn't think people were going to be into it, and it was like I couldn't have been more wrong because it was like 
kind of like back in craft time in kindergarten. So we had everyone do six by six inch squares, and you could write whatever you wanted, like, you know, make AIDS ribbons or, you know, be, whatever it meant to you, whatever it meant to you to be positive or be part of the conference. And then we sewed them all together, and then we're submitting it to the, the AIDS coils. So it actually turned out really, really, really cool, and people were totally into it. Like, bust out the glitter, and people were, like, having a field day. I'm done. I'm not kidding. I was like, no one's going to want to do this. It's, like, so messy. And, like, our booth, we had to make it bigger. Like, you know, at one point, we, I think it seated eight people, and then we had to, like, double the size we'd get another table because people were, like, so into crafting. And, like, I was like, okay. So, yeah, it was good. That's funny because I just saw you just uploaded the photo on Pause I Am and I went and I looked at it and I was like, wow, that's a really big piece of quilt. Actually, that's the standard size. And we needed, um, we ha we actually needed 108 squares because we have our logo in the middle. And um, and actually, so we had to, we couldn't even use everyone's. It was too bad because I think we had like 300 or something at the end of the, there was only three days of the booth. Actually, we couldn't even do it the last day because uh, they all had to dry. It was like puff paint and glitter paint and literally it was like I had glitter like in every orifice by the time I left that place. <laughs> so well, that's funny because I was just um, talking to Kenji. You remember Kenji. We were talking to him yeah, and he's starting this thing um, online right now. It's on YouTube. It's called The Living AIDS Quilt and he's actually asking people like activists like ourselves to make a quilt panel to put together to create a living AIDS quilt which is something kind of different, and I thought it was kind oh, of... Oh, that's kind of, a, kind of a cool idea. You mean, like, to do a panel for ourselves and say, yeah. I'm positive yeah. or whatever? Oh, that's right. interesting. Actually, it's a good idea. They yeah, did have, so, um, there, was a, there was another really cool interactive booth there, and I can't remember who, um, I think it was Walgreens and in tandem with someone else, but you could take a... I did it, and you can take a photo, and it, um, you had, there was a dry erase board, and it said, my deciding moment was, or whatever, and... It didn't like you could. It was really just sort of up to you what you wanted to write. Like it didn't even necessarily have to be about HIV or. But I wrote. I think my deciding moment was when I knew I could make a difference. And people were, were writing like I guess I'm people writing novels, but I wanted to write something really simple. But yeah, so that was cool. Um, you know the usual the usual groups were there, and I saw a ton of people I know and. Um, yeah, it's fun. It is fun. I think it would have been fun, uh, you know, if, if I'm not working, it's, that's a lot of pressure. I have an app to right. really represent. And I think if I would have gone and gone to go to the seminars, and a lot of it's really educational and about, um, you know, new new med medications that are coming down the pike and all this stuff. So so I think it's really great. I mean, people were well, loving it. And, um, you know, it's funny because this is my third time there, and I people come back every year and they're like, I have pictures of with you every year and it's kind of cool. Yeah. That's great. That's great. Actually, uh, I want to move over to our guest tonight since he's on hold. Um, our guest this evening is Scott Freed and he is an HIV AIDS educator, public speaker, and author. Um, he actually uh, just sent me um, his new book called A Private Midnight and it is a teenager's scrapbook of secrets. And I have to tell you, this book is not only creative and visually stimulating to look at the way that it's put together, but these thoughts that these teenagers have written down in this book are seriously thoughts that I've had growing up. So, I mean, I'm just going back. I want to bring him on now. He's, he's touched more than a million people's lives across the United States. He appeared in numerous countries speaking, uh, Israel, um, Holland, uh, different places for his lectures. And he has just a great message for teens, young adults, parents, and teachers. 
and it's a powerful message of love, responsibility, sacredness, and self-respect. So please help me welcome Scott Freed to the show. Scott, welcome hey. to Pause Time Radio. I'm so glad to be on. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to have you. Thank you. Uh, thanks for uh, talking about the book. I just have to say, I look at your picture. You look really super familiar. <laughs> the same thing. Have we met before, or do you just have that face? <laughs> I work out at the same gym as you. Oh, okay, that's why. Wait a minute. You just sent me a, a, a private message on Twitter the other day. Cause I, I did? Started following, yes, you did. I just, I just started following you on Twitter, and you sent me a message. Hey, thanks for following me. Okay, good. Yeah, if you ever message me or do anything, I'll follow you. I like, I like, I like, I like to follow people that are interactive with me. So. Yeah. Um, well, good. That's so funny because I was like, I totally know this dude. Anyway. Yes, you All do. All right, good. He looks familiar to me, too, and I know I never met him, and I, he looks so familiar to me. <laughs> okay. He has to well, have that face. I have an identical twin brother, so if he's somewhere out there, maybe you've met him as well. But maybe I just have that face. <laughs> so, Scott, thanks for taking some time out to hang out with us. Actually, a friend of ours, Scott Kramer, he co-hosts here sometime, is the one who actually suggested that I contact you to come on the show. And I have great. to tell you that you do great things out there. I'm, I've been, you know, checking out this private midnight here, and I'm just stunned at all the wonderful things that these kids, you know, are actually saying that I remember thinking. And... You know, just me carrying this book with me for the last couple of days, my sister has seen it, and I think it's something that she can share with her, who's going to be 13, my niece. And then today I was at an event, and a friend of mine saw it, and she goes, this really makes me think that when I talk to my kids, I should shut up and listen more. Yes. Well, I, <laughs> well yeah. But I decided uh, that what happens is, is, generally speaking, when parents pick up their kids from school and they put them in the back of the car for the carpool, they say the same two things all the time, anywhere in the country. What did you do and how was your day? And the answers are always the same, nothing and fine. And I wanted to give parents as well as teenagers an opportunity to have a conversation that was a little deeper than the general how are you and what did you do today. So I came up with the ten uh, interesting questions I wish that somebody would ask me when I was a teenager. And I asked the students that I teach around the country, over the past few years, and they gave me their answers. So that's what the book is. Well, so what, can you give some, some examples of what the questions are? Yeah. The, there, I think actually these are the ten most important questions you could ever ask any teenager. And uh, some of them are, most importantly, who are you? But not your Facebook profile and not what your age is or your gender, but who are you when nobody's looking? Who are you in something I like to call the unprotected moments, when the unguarded moments, when you yourself aren't even sure of the answer. And some of the other interesting questions are, uh, what does the emptiness inside feel like? Which uh, already implies that there is an emptiness, not is there an emptiness, but yes, there is, and describe for me what it is to be a teenager with emptiness. And, and uh, my favorite question, which I think every teenager should ever have somebody ask them is, I think anybody at any age, is whose arms do you fall into? And I don't mean the 3 a.m. phone call to your BFF, which is great. And I don't mean uh, somebody that you have in your Facebook network or in your cell phone. I mean literally who wraps their arms around you when life hurts. And not about sex, but when life hurts and they hold you because the hardest thing I think a teenager could ever say, and this is true of adults as well, but as adults we don't like to admit this, are the words 
please hold me. So I think that a really important question to ask a teenager is, who, who holds you when life sucks? Right. Yeah. Well, so I think actually those, those questions are applicable. To, I mean, wh- tell me about the emptiness inside or, or whatever, how you phrase that question. I mean, I, that's, we all have that. Doesn't, you don't necessarily be a teenager. I think that applies to everyone. Yeah. It's true, but I think the teenagers, what I've noticed, and that's who I spend my time teaching mostly, uh, teenagers seem to have a, a better, a stronger relationship to it, and it's newer to them. And we as adults may have become familiar with it or forget about it because of a certain amount of resiliency or uh, antidepressants, whatever it is. Right. Teenagers are it's the first interface they have with this void, this sense of what am I doing in this life if I'm not just my, the sister or the brother or the daughter or the son? It's the big questions I start asking, and the answer comes back. It's emptiness. And I think that for many people, it's, for most teenagers, it's frightening. But what I write about in the book and what I teach teenagers in particular about emptiness is that it's actually a good thing. It's there, as you say, everybody's got it, but we rarely talk about it. And once you give them permission to feel that, then they start opening up and talk. And that's the, that's the reason I've got all these answers in this book because I, my theory with teenagers is to give them permission to be who they are, even if who they are is fat, even if who they are is sad, permission to simply be that and then find out who else they are. And then they open up to me. I mean, it's great because the, the collection of answers range from people who are 13 years old. I think I even saw one up to 21. So right. it, it really speaks volumes to the, to the audience because there's so many, you know, young people in there that have those questions and those doubts in their heads. Well, I, what I did was, well, I've been traveling around the country for the past 19 years doing this work. And in the past few years, I wanted to do something that would keep me relevant because I'm 47 now, and they're always 15 and 16 and 17. And I wanted to stay relevant. And I realized that one of the ways I could do that was by interviewing them and finding out what their, what their, secrets or their secret life is about. And one of the ways I did that was post a survey on my website. It's still there, scottfried.com. And teenagers still go there and they answer anonymously these 10 and questions. There's actually a few more than 10. And that's how I got a lot of the answers from them. And they would give me a fake name and they would tell me their answers. And so they're anywhere from 13 to 21. Some of them are a little bit older, but this book I wanted to, I wanted it to be a statement about this period of time between the ages of 13 and 21, which I call a private midnight, and that's what the title of the book means. It's that time in your life when you feel like life just hasn't started, the morning can't come fast enough, and you want to know the things that grown-ups know, but you're still a teenager, so it's one long, dark highway, and you're just waiting for someone to show you how to get out of there, and that's what I call a private midnight. What was the, imp- what was the impetus for all this, like, was there something in your childhood that you thought was not addressed, or, like, how did this all come about? I was, I had a dream one night, actually. It, it, was, it was a few years. I've been teaching for 19 years. The impetus for this book was from a dream that I had uh, about five or six years ago. My friend Richie, who was my 73rd friend to die of AIDS, and we have lost, as you know, of course, would agree, so many friends. And I've lost 131, and Richie was the 73rd. 
friend to die. And he came to me in a dream one night, and he was sitting in, in his dream. He was sitting across the table from me in, in the diner we'd always used to eat at after our HIV support group meetings on Tuesday nights. And in the dream, he looked into my eyes, he put his hands on my hands, and he said, what is the miracle you're waiting for, Scotty? Which then became the first of the ten questions. That's one of the questions in the book. What is the miracle you're waiting for? So then I started to think, what is the answer to that question? And then I wondered what are the answers to the questions that the other that my students would give me. And that just grew. And then when I would give these lectures in high schools and universities and synagogues and churches, summer camps, the teenagers would come up to me privately at the end and tell me their secrets and the answers to things that I throw out there, but they wouldn't raise their hand and say it in front of a group of their peers uh, in a high school auditorium at 7 a.m. But one-on-one, they would tell me. So I decided to put together a book of secrets that they can all read and know that they're not the only one. And then what's also so cool about this book, it's a scrapbook. As the title says, it's a scrapbook of secrets. So at the end of each chapter, at the end of each question you ask, you get to you, the reader, get to write your own answers in, in the form of drawings and artwork or your own uh, uh, your own kind of poetry. So it all started, Jack, with a dream from my friend Richie, my 73rd friend to die of AIDS, who I miss the most. And he came to me and said, "What's the miracle you're waiting for?" And that's how the book started. That's um, great. And actually, I. I mean, that's a great answer, but I just was actually sort of in shock that you counted the number of friends you know that had the I like to stop counting, but that's kind of amazing. So I was afraid that I was going to be on that list, and I oh, was yeah, wondering, I was of course, which number at which point I would arrive on that list. And the other thing I was afraid of was being forgotten, and I think it's horrible to say, but it's a truthful statement. Sometimes we forget people. We do, and when the numbers are so large, you're not. We don't. There's always someone to remember somebody. I'd like to believe that. But when you reach 131 names on a list of uh, people who've died, it's, it's good to go back and say, oh, right, that person was, I haven't seen them in a long time. And some of them have been gone for so long, I needed to remember them. And I also have their voices from my answering machine tapes and uh, a montage that I show of their faces at the end of most of my lectures because so many, well, many teenagers, in fact, all teenagers today, they don't have the relationship to AIDS that we do and that we did, and they don't know what we went through, so I want to give them what, uh, a piece of what we lived through by giving, showing them faces of the friends that we've lost. And it's a great way to help memorialize them. So, yeah, I, I, they each have a number, and uh, it's how well, I remember that's, them. that's great, and I actually think it's a really powerful message because one thing that people always ask me is, you know, now the treatments are better and people are living longer and it's like a, becoming a chronic mental illness, you know, best case scenario. What, you know, how do you remind people of the, the horrible devastation that we lived through in the late 80s and early 90s? And, like, that's a really powerful way to go about it. I think that's yeah. amazing. Cause even, I, even I think we forget, you know, people, because we're old timers. I've been positive for 21 years. I don't know how long, long you've been positive. But, yeah, I, I remember just, like, Every month, you'd go to a memorial service, and it was just like, okay, like, you know, not a big – after a while, I mean, it's not that it's not a big deal, but you just become numb because you're like, well, all my friends are going to die, so there yeah. you go. You're so right, Jack. It's actually such a big deal that you become numb because it's right. too much for your psyche to take in and still get out of bed in the morning and do what you came here to do 
because you may think that you're next on that list. So um, it's a great way to help us remember what, what we went through and for them to know as well. And I have to tell teenagers almost on a daily basis the answer to this, this question. And even just today I was talking to some teenagers who are in New York City from Israel, Israeli teenagers who said to me, but it's a chronic disease, so why, should we, why do we have to worry? And as they asked that question, I took one of my HIV meds right there in front of them and I swallowed it and said, that's why, because I have to take my meds while you don't care. And because it's one thing to say, I'll take meds for the rest of my life and survive. It's another thing to have to tell somebody while you're about to have sex with them and then they reject you because, and for only the reason that you have HIV, not because they don't want to be with you. It's a very different thing to live with HIV and actually deal with the stuff that people with HIV have to deal with. It's great that we stop dying as much and as quickly, but one of the things that happens when you live a long life is you also have to endure a lot more loss. You have to live with the loss of more rejection. You still have to pay your taxes. You have to watch your parents die. You have to learn about having a broken heart. And all those things happen for people with HIV and also people without HIV. But living with HIV adds to the burden of living. Right. Now, Scott, you were diagnosed um, in 87, right, at the age of right. 24? I was 24 years old, and I got infected in 1987. I was diagnosed. I got my results six months later. It was June 1st of 1988, and these dates are so important to me because, as you know, they changed my life. They changed our lives. But I, I say that I got infected in 87 because I know the day, I know the week that it happened. It was my first time having unsafe sex. And it was my first time having sex with a man. I mean, I'd had sex with a, with a woman before, and we were always safe. And then I had sex with this one guy, and that's when I got infected. And it was the first week of December, which is sort of ironic for an AIDS educator like myself, because as we know, the first week of December is World AIDS Week. It's when we all talk about AIDS everywhere in the world, and that's when I got infected in um, 1987. Now, were you educated at that time? I mean, you, you obviously were aware of HIV, right, because you were saying you lost friends along the way. I was educated. And as in fact, my father was a health teacher at, Queen, at Kingsborough Community College in Queens here in New York, and he was teaching uh, his students about HIV and AIDS in 88, 89. I was certainly educated, but I wasn't ed not educated enough. And I was... I was as educated back then, I would say, as the teenagers are today. And that means that I knew HIV existed, and I knew that it was dangerous and out there, and I knew that you needed to use a condom, and that's all I knew. I didn't know how to use a condom. I didn't know how to ask my partner to use a condom every time. And more importantly, I didn't know the four fluids that transfer HIV. I didn't know what HIV stands for or AIDS stands for. And I didn't know anything about a mucous membrane and why mucous membranes are the most important thing to know in transmission of HIV into the body. What I knew then is what teenagers know now, which is not enough, which is simply that it exists and you need to be safe, which is why HIV is still a problem today, because of the abject, egregious lack of comprehensive sexual health education in our country. Now, do you think that there maybe is a specific way or a way that you would advise parents to talk to their kids? Because I know, like, my niece is 13, so she's getting around that age where she's going to start asking questions and, you know, about whether it be sex. So I think the other day she saw something about the AIDS walk coming, and she didn't know what AIDS was. What kind of response would you, you know, advise a parent to give 
their child because you know they, they're scared to talk about it. Some are, some are not. It's a really great question to ask that you're asking me. It has the answer has to do with the parent. It's, it depends on who you are as a parent. And every parent has the right to talk to their child and raise their child the way they want to. So I don't. When I talk to parents a lot, I do a lot of parent workshops. I always have this disclaimer, and that is that I'm not telling a parent how to be a parent, but I do offer some of my advice. And so it depends on who you are. If you're a parent that's comfortable talking about sex, then you, then I would say start as early as possible at seven, eight, nine, to the degree that the child can understand the level at which you're speaking so that it's a conversation that's always been around. If you're a parent that's not comfortable talking about sex, then at least have somebody of your age, of your caliber, of your stature in your son and daughter's life who can talk about sex. And while you're uncomfortable talking about sex, find out why and find out how to deal with your discomfort. And at the very least, sit down with your children and say, I am uncomfortable talking about this because telling the truth about how you feel at any moment is what makes the person you're talking to comfortable with you. It disarms you. If I say to you right now, oh, my God, I'm so nervous. I'm on the radio with you guys, that makes you feel like you want to make me feel comfortable. If a parent says to a child, I'm a little uncomfortable talking about this, the child then has a way to feel more comfortable with their parent because they're opening up to each other. It's uh, telling the truth in the moment, right then and there. So each parent has their own way. But I do suggest is that a parent finds a way to do it. The other thing I actually think is really crucial is not just the education about HIV and transmission. I think a lot of it and a lot of reasons why I think it's probably part of the reason why a lot of gay men in particular are having unprotected sex even though they know they shouldn't is that it has to do with um, your feelings of self-worth. And I think if you instill at a really early age into a child, like, you are amazing, you need to protect yourself above all costs, you, you are worthy. And I think those, you know, those messages really empower a child and, and empower anyone and, and that's a young person and says, like, okay, well, I'm worth protecting, and so I need to know how this information, if I'm going to be, you know, taking, engaging in any behavior that there's a risk, I need to protect myself. That's it, the end, you know, and I, well, I'm no. worth protecting. I, I usually don't say this, but, Jack, I couldn't say it better than that. That is beautifully said. Uh, and it also answers your earlier question. If you're a parent that doesn't know how to talk to your children about sex, at least be a parent that knows how to tell your child you are beautiful. And one of the things that I, well, in every lecture, I end every lecture with this concept. Uh, it's the main point of my talk. If you are allowed permission to be who you truly are, then who you truly are is enough. And... For some teenagers, the, the idea of being beautiful is only external, and they want every teenager, even the boys, even the straight boys, want to be beautiful. We want to be desirable. We want to be uh, someone who people want to be around. But if you teach them that they are enough as they are from within, even if what they look like on the outside isn't equal to somebody else who's measuring what beauty is defined as, then they start to rise to that level, like you're saying. And so my, my main theme is you are enough as you are, and that there's, not a, there's nothing that you as a teenager could, could say to me as your teacher, as your, uh, as your guest speaker in your school today, about your life that would make you less lovable, that would make you less uh, um, 
deserving of kindness and unconditional love. But the main point is it shouldn't have to come from a guest speaker in a high school auditorium. It should be coming from a parent at the table every night when they come home from school. Not how was your day and what did you do, but are you aware how beautiful you are and you are enough? Those are the messages that every parent can offer their child. But here's the thing. So many parents, in as much as they'll say, yeah, I believe that when I meet them in support groups of just me talking to parents, they will say, but I don't want my child to be fat. And I don't want my child to uh, fail out of school. And I don't want my child to do to, 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 to drugs. And I, my only response is, what, what if they are? What if they can't lose the weight? What if they do get messed up in drugs? What if they drop out of high school? Are they less deserving of your love? Are they less deserving of your unconditional love? Do they still get to know that they are enough? Because I actually believe that some of the reasons a teenager drops out of school, some of the reasons a teenager has an eating disorder or has unsafe sex is is because they want to say to their parents, in so many words, if I do this to my body, to my life, will you still love you. I'm just checking. I'm just testing. I just want to know, how far do I have to go to prove for you to show me that you love me unconditionally? So I, I really challenge parents to think how much is in, can, how hard would it be to let their child be who they really are, not who you want them to be. Right. <clears throat> yeah, I know that, that, that it's tough to be a parent, and I, I can't even imagine it. You know, my sisters, they both have young kids, and I try to advise them to talk to their kids openly and honestly about everything, even about, you know, myself being HIV positive and, and being gay, because I think having that line of communication, whether it's between my sister and her kids or me and, and my niece and nephew, they, the lines need to be opened. I mean, they're at the age, you know, uh, my nephew's eight, and I think she's going to be 13. So I think that, you know, those lines have to be open for questions. Because the years from 8 to 13 happen in a heartbeat, overnight. Overnight, they turn, in, they, they turn from children to teenagers. And, and, and an 8-year-old or a 7-year-old in the backyard skins his knee, comes in and needs a kiss and a Band-Aid, and they're fine. And in five years, they, they hurt some other part of their body, maybe their soul, their heart is broken because they give their body to some guy and he doesn't call the next day, or they... Uh, their, their heart gets broken and, or they have an STD and it's not a band-aid and a kiss that's going to solve it anymore. And in fact, it's something that really can't be solved, right? We know that a broken heart doesn't get solved with a kiss and a band-aid. It takes time and it doesn't even get healed. It just needs time, we need time to become familiar with that sense of loss in our life. So the, the years between 8 and 13, just your sister's kids alone, it's overnight and what was required for an eight, for the, uh, to help an eight-year-old is one thing, but when they become a teenager, it's an entirely new world. Raising a teenager is a whole different situation than raising a child, a small child. Well, I just think also, I mean, you have to consider the fact that, yeah, I mean, it's, this is all great information that we're saying, but there's also, I mean, a lot of times parents aren't equipped in a lot of ways. And I think back, I mean, I think we're, it's a generational difference between you and I and Robert, but... Um, you know, when, when I was young, my mom, I would come from a single family home and my mom was great and she really did her best, but like, it was also a different generation and they, they didn't, there were certain things we just didn't talk about and, um, I was clearly gay from a very young age and, um, you know, there were, the, the climate, the, the homophobia was so much different. There were, I mean, we, my mom didn't think she knew any gay people except for like, you know, Poland and Liberace, <laughs> and then, you know, I mean, so it was, 
not that she wasn't liberal and accepting, she just didn't have the vocabulary. So it's hopefully we've moved on enough that people can, I mean, I think it's great when I hear stories of like, you know, she has friends who now have kids my age or whatever that have their own kids that are clearly, you know, even at four, five, and six are clearly gay kids and they're taking, they're like, oh, okay. And, um, you know, it's like, Johnny wants to buy a pink parasol. Well, you know, let him because he's not going to, that's just the way it is. I hope that that I wish that were the case everywhere, and it's 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 true. The life is times have changed for for a lot of kids. There are still the teenagers who are runaways, and now I think they're called throwaways because they're they're not actually running away. They're they're the kids who come out of the closet, and they're in the Midwest or they're in parts of the country where it's not as accepted, perhaps, to have the conversations that you and I are having. Well, it doesn't even, and, it doesn't even and, have to be in the Midwest. I mean, it can it happens all the time anywhere. Right. Like, I'm, I'm just thinking of a homeless shelter that I teach. I do some work at in um, in the Midwest, and that's where mine comes from. And there's a bunch of throwaways there, but they're all over the yeah. country. You're exactly right. And so, yes, the world is changing, but it you know, certainly can't change fast enough. Because of for that one teenager who's thrown out or who's run away, um, they don't have the luxury of growing up in the world that you, know, that you and I would like them to see growing up in. But, so that's why I do my part. That's why you guys do your part. I, get, I, go, I go out there. I go into the school so that they can hear from, you know, from my history, from what it was like. And my, my, my biggest goal is to prove to them or show to them what it looks like to be vulnerable so that they can, through me, imagine, um, project onto me what the vulnerability would be like in their lives. Because to live a life of vulnerability at times is an elegant thing, and it's a way of growing and healing, and it's how you have to come out. To be vulnerable is a, is a coming out experience. To come out is being vulnerable. So I try to provide that for them, whether it's talking about my HIV status or my, my sexuality and what it was like for me growing up and my religious family's home where it wasn't okay to be gay, certainly not back in 1976 when Charlie's Angels were on TV, and to show, <laughs> to show teenagers today what it's like. Yeah. When I was in, when I, 1976, I was in high school, I used to watch Charlie's Angels, and I had the poster of Sarah Fawcett uh, in her one-piece bathing suit and her flip-curl hairstyle and her white teeth. And it was, it was taped to the door of my closet, um, and I used to stare at it, and I would think, it does nothing for me. But then I would watch The Six Million Dollar Man, and I remember it being ages, and I would think, okay, now I know. That's what it is. But right. I couldn't say that to anybody, and now we've got gay straight alliances in, in different parts of the country in high schools and pride groups and teenagers who are coming out earlier and earlier, which is just incredible to see and to hear. But I still... It's, uh, it's, go ahead. I'm sorry. Sorry to interrupt. I, it's true, and I just read a recent study that I think the average age now is so young, and it's like, that. I think it's great. In one sense, it's also even more difficult. Like, I know there's kids coming out, and I just, I get messages on Facebook and stuff of, like, 13-year-olds and 14-year-olds that are coming out and, like, it's really kind of crazy. I didn't even, I remember I came, I, I was basically out at my senior year in high school at 18, and then I finally came out in college. And even then in, at 18, and this was 1987, I didn't really know what it was. I just knew that I liked boys, that I didn't, I still, I mean, I, I know they talked about homosexuality on TV, and there were certain gay stereotypes, and, but I, I kind of just, I, I mean, and I grew up in a suburb of Seattle. I didn't grow up in the middle of nowhere, so... But I just think it, we didn't have any role models, really, that were so visible. I think that's exactly what it is. You know what I mean? Because when I was growing up, I came out at 17, and I remember Will and Grace being on TV. 
So seeing other people that are gay on TV like yourself, Jack, when you were on Project Runaway, when people see that, it sparks something inside of them, and they're like, I'm like him. And, and now I, they, they, they see that, and they have the courage to, to come out. So I think that's great. Real quick, I want to open up the phone lines for people. If you have any questions for Scott, uh, you can give us a call here at 347-215-9442. Um, Scott, one of the other things I wanted to ask you is a friend of mine had um, a baby out of uh, wedlock. And the baby is now becoming a teenager, and the baby, well, not the teenager now, just found out that she, you know, her mom was pregnant beforehand and all that other stuff before they got married. And now the friend is afraid to tell the teenager the truth because they don't want the teenager to make the same mistake. They think, you know, if mom did it, then it's okay for me to do it. What do you say to things like that? The truth like people who are afraid. That, you, that the truth always works. I mean, if you, it's the same thing about if you're a parent who doesn't want your child, your teenager, to do drugs, but you did drugs yourself when you were in high school and college. It, in my opinion, the truth always works because what you because there's the truth and there's then there's the whole truth. And teenagers hear the whole truth. And we as adults, or certainly as parents, are afraid. I think that teenagers are only hearing some of the truth, but they get the whole truth. And the whole truth to that question and the answer is that, look, I had you out of wedlock, and I'm glad I had you because you're in my life, and it's the best thing that ever happened in my life. But this is, this is what, what also came along with it, and, and this is my request for you. But the bottom line is a teenager is going to do what a teenager is going to do. So if you tell them not to do it, it only shuts the door to a possible conversation or many conversations. Anytime you sit in a restaurant and the waitress puts the plate down and says, don't touch the plate, it's hot, the first thing you do is touch it. So if you tell a teenager not to do what I do something that, that I don't want you to be doing, it just, all that does is, A, make, perhaps make them want to do it more or find a curiosity or a, mystery, a mystique around it, but B, it just shuts down an opportunity for a conversation. You know what? And that's what it's all about between, between teenagers and their parents. It's an opportunity to have an open, honest conversation and without judgment. And if the teenager, if the parent isn't judging the teenager, the teenager's not going to judge the parent because the only way we know to judge is what we learn from others who judge us. And if a parent is not judging that child, the child or themselves, then the child is not going to learn to judge the parent. Truth right. works. I learned that in my very first HIV support group in 1987, 1988. I walked in, and Marianne Williamson was sitting, leading the group she'd, before she'd even written her first book, and it was a bunch of guys sitting around in an apartment on 18th Street, and she opened her mouth, and she said, truth works. That's why we're here. We're here to talk about the truth. It's the greatest weapon you've got. So I would say that to any parent. Hmm. I actually say that all the time. I mean, people. The I think the most common question I get for, well, one of them is, um, how do you tell people that you're positive? And I'm like, and when do you tell them? And you know, especially in the dating scenario. And I'm like, well, you know what? There's not. There's no right answer to that. But like, you know what? Honesty for me, upfront, first date, first whatever, first encounter. Like, if they're not comfortable with it, they're not going to be comfortable with it on the third date. Like, so I think that applies to many scenarios. Sure. I love that line from the very first season of Brothers and Sisters when Calista Flockhart's saying to some guy on a date about whatever she's dealing with, and she, she says, my life is too short and too important to be wasting time on not talking truth. And I don't have right. any time to waste on anything else. And so, yeah, it's, it's important. What I discovered is that when you finally open up about your stuff, you get return, 
return with gifts. People want to give you their secrets. They respect you for being so honest with them because it's, it's kind of rare to have conversations like we're having right now tonight. This is why uh, it's, uh, it, it's a gift to a lot of people. Maybe well, I mean, you know what? I always say that's, that's a really good point that you mentioned that because I always say that too. I'm like, I promise you. I mean, because especially the young people are really nervous. I'm like, I don't want to tell my family. I don't want to tell my friends. I know people are not going to approve of it. I'm like, you know what? I, I mean, I can't, I can't forecast what's going to happen with your particular situation, but more often than not, I promise you, people are going to surprise you. Right. And I mean, and you're right. They give back. The, and I think you get support that you need, and I think you get. I mean, and it may not just be HIV. Like you said, with kids, it can be any issue that they're dealing with. Um, you know, as teenagers, it's like, you know, your world is very small for most, for the most part, and you're you're in your head a lot, and you're dealing with bullying and you know, crap at school and all that stuff. And I just remember just feeling like you're miserable. And so, I mean, I think that's a good sort of mantra about for a lot of for a lot of issues. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's uh, hard to find the words. Go ahead. I have a caller here on the line, so I'm going to bring them on. Area code 705. What's your name and where are you calling from? Uh, James, calling from Sudbury, Ontario. Hey, James. How hey, are you? Good, good. Uh, I was just wondering if you had any uh, tips on uh, public speaking. Sure. <laughs> nice to meet you, James. Thanks for calling. I learned how to be a public speaker from uh, acting class. I was never a good actor. Uh, because I was too good at being me. <laughs> I didn't want to be another character. But my first suggestion for you would be to take some acting classes, not public speaking classes. I don't know what that's about. But I would suggest you definitely would to try out an acting class so you know what it's like to, um, to, to stand up in front of room, a room full of people. But here's my, my, my best suggestion for you. Um, to try to understand is that every person who you speak to in a room full of people that you've been asked to talk to under any situation is, is desperately waiting for somebody to come along and with, uh, with their words or with their energy or with the way that you look at them, they're waiting for you to say, I know what it's like to be you. And if you say that with your energy and you say that with your, with, your, with your words or just the way that you stand there and look across the room, they will open up their heart to you. Sometimes I get up there on stage or in a classroom and I just get up there and say, you know what, I don't know. Three words, I don't know. And that makes a room comfortable. It disarms them because they don't know either. There's so much that they don't know. Try to remember that everybody's looking to be remembered and to be connected to somebody who knows what it's like to be them. We don't talk about the truth often enough. They're sitting and looking and waiting for somebody to, to touch them in that way. Um, the other thing I would say, and it's a really important thing, and that is that uh, remember the person in the very back of the room. Remember the person in the last row of the auditorium sitting in the dark. That's the person who might need to hear you the most because they didn't have the courage to come up to the front of the room and they weren't sure they could come all the way into the room, if they want to hear something. It's those people that are sort of on the periphery. So keep thinking about them with love in your heart. Is, is that too esoteric? Do you need more specific stuff? Uh, like, <laughs> well, do you go prepared with something to say, or do you just speak from the heart? Well, I'm, I do speak from the heart, but I'm always prepared. When I'm hired to speak at school, they, 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 they tell me exactly what they want me to talk about. I 
So, and they tell me what they don't want to talk about. They make sure that if, I, if it's if it's they're too young to to talk about sex, they make sure that I don't. And I always try my hardest to follow their rules. But the truth is what it is. Um, but so I do have an idea of what I want to say, and I think it's important to always have a uh, really uh, an honest story to tell about your life. I don't know how important it is to tell a good joke. I don't know if that really works. I do think it works to be able to tell a story that happens in your life because. Just think about when we were kids. What what makes you say uh, interested? Is somebody telling them, reading you a story? And so when you're in high school, or you're you're in college, even if you're a grown up sitting at a dinner table, it's the person who tells a story with the details, as if you were there, and actually seeing and feeling what it was like to to actually relive that story. The people sit there with their mouths open because they everybody wants to have someone tell them a story. But the more honest it is the better you'll be. So I tell them the story of how I got infected the night I got infected or how I told my mother that I got infected and the tear dropping down from her jaw to the collar of her uh, shirt or the time uh, my friend uh, Richie died and the details of what I was feeling what was happening in that moment bring people into that actual moment. The more specific you can get, the more honest you can get. The other thing is just from a sort of like pragmatic standpoint like I, I i do a lot of public speaking as well and i had a phobia of it a phobia and i was just because i was on tv people were like oh you can totally talk in front of a crowd and i was literally forced into it and i went kicking and screaming and for me it just clicked one day like i it it was about practice it was just about doing it and like um you know he just said is think especially if you're if you're talking about something that you're familiar with talking about yourself, that's the easiest way to go, and that's how I started, and eventually I just got better at it now, and now I can speak to a thousand people and it doesn't bother me. So I think that's just, that's just one of, right. it's just practice. And James, I would say this too as well, in addition to what Jack just said, I would say that whatever it is you want to speak about, you, you have the right to say it, and there's going to be somebody in your life that wants to hear it, in fact, that needs to hear it, so, so go out there and say it. Just say it with confidence, say it with heart, even if you feel insecure about it, it's going to make a difference in someone's life. Uh, totally. Uh, let me bring on the next caller, area code 516. What's your name and where are you calling from? Hey, Robert. It's actually Christopher. Hey, Christopher. You're coming in a little staticky, buddy. Oh, can you hear me now? No, why don't you try calling us back in like a second because you sound staticky bad. Okay. <laughs> I'll right, right back, Chris. All right, I have a question here out of the chat room. Uh, what do you suggest, Scott, to people who work in high schools and see young people, maybe uh, grade 7, grade 8, boys who are obviously gay? Do you suggest that they, you know, tell them or, or say anything specifically to them to, about being true to themselves without being picked on? Absolutely not. I would never, ever, and this is my opinion only, uh, approach a teenager and make them talk about their sexuality. I would make myself approachable so that they could feel comfortable talking to me as the teacher, but to call somebody out even in the best of interest to make them feel more safe in the world only scares them. Here's why. Every teenager, whether they're gay or straight, has the same thing in common, and this is the secret that every teenager carries in their pocket, and I'm going to let you know what it is right now. It is that they are deathly afraid of getting caught, being the person they say they're not. And who they say they are is who they say they are on the Facebook profiles and what the clubs they are part of and the, the stories they tell. But who 
and they don't want to get caught being not being that. And if a teacher comes up with the best of intentions and says, I know there's more that you're not sharing, and I want to help you, then it appears to that teenager that their inner world, their secret life is showing, and then they have no place to hide. It shuts off their only survival mechanism, which is their secret world. So I would never pull somebody out of a closet, even with the best of intentions. What I would do is try to help them feel comfortable with who they are as they are. And I would ask the teacher to wonder, ask themselves, why is it so important for that teenager to come to terms with their sexuality? It's a process. As Jack said, it, he knew at a certain age, and other people know it later. I couldn't come out until I was 24. Uh, it's everybody's journey individually. I know it's, a, it's for the best of intentions, but I don't think it's a good idea. The only other thing I would add, that I would add to that is not to chastise someone for um, what is considered, you know, abnormal or just different behavior. You know, it's like I just remember being called out for uh, wearing clear nail polish when I was in third grade. And I remember that shame to this day, exactly what it felt like. Like, you know, and I mean, that kind of stuff is going to happen. And, and like you said, no child wants to be called out for Everyone just wants to be invisible so, so many, or, you know, or to fit in or be normal. And being called out for any particular reason that's a personal, you know, something that you are doing or your weight or your ethnicity or, you know, you have a lisp or whatever it is, you know, nobody wants that. And I still, I remember that chain like it was yesterday, you know. So that's all I would add. I agree. To the next caller, welcome. Christopher. Hi, can you hear me now? It still sounds a little staticky, so what I'm going to have you do is ask your question, and then we'll disconnect you so there's no static. <laughs> okay. Yeah, just wanted to say hi real quick. It's Christopher. You, we met through Jeff a few months ago. Oh, hi, Christopher. Yes. <laughs> I just wanted to know really quick if uh, I'm able to sit in on one of your speaks, uh, speaking one time here in the city, if uh, you'll still have me. That would be, <laughs> that'd be possible, absolutely. Uh, <laughs> Uh, <laughs> yeah, I can do that. Christopher uh, and I were supposed to speak together at a certain point this summer when I was doing some work in New York City, but it didn't work out. Absolutely, Chris. Thanks for calling in. Thank, Thank you so much. much. You're welcome. Yeah, Christopher's great. I actually met him at the summit in D.C. this year, the ADAP Crisis Summit, and he's uh, one of the bloggers on the, our network, so he's a, he's a really cool guy. Um, yeah, he's a – yeah. Let's see. The, another question I have in here, do you have any other new books coming out? <laughs> I've written three. This one that just came out, my private midnight came out in December, December 1st, World Aids Day. And I said after my second book that I was not going to write anymore, and I, of course, came out with this, this book. So the next book that I will write when I start writing it is going to be a book for parents. So we talked about that earlier in this program, about how to talk to their teenagers and how to listen to their teenagers. That's what this book was going to be, but it ended up being a book for uh, the scrapbook that it is. So the next book I, I, I write, I hope, will be uh, this, this book for parents. Uh, on their secret, the kids' secrets and how to learn to listen to their, the things that they're not saying and to love them even when they don't become the people that you want them to be. Tell us um a little bit about the, the other books that you have, because you do have, um, you know, two other books, and then you also have a musical CD and a, a lecture CD. Um, right. What are they about? Well, the first book is called If I Grow Up, and it's a collection of lectures teaching teenagers about AIDS, just AIDS. I wrote it in 1997, 1998, 
because um, back in those days, nobody was talking about uh, HIV as much as we are today. In fact, it's, it's still a problem. We're still not talking about it enough. But that's a book on how to have a conversation about HIV, how to talk to your partners about HIV, what to do if you find out you have HIV. Uh, and I had the students at the time write poems that were called If I Grow Up. So it's got a bunch of the poems that they wrote. And the meaning behind that is if you, if you write a poem that says If I Grow Up, it has a whole different meaning than When I Grow Up because of the, the, the tone of HIV hanging over your shoulder. The second book came out five or six years later, and it's called My Invisible Kingdom, and it's a collection of letters that the students wrote me after the first book came out. I was started getting hundreds, thousands of emails and letters from teenagers from around the country and other countries telling me about their secrets, and they didn't have much to do with HIV and AIDS. They talked about bulimia and cutting epidemic amounts of cutters in this country, teenage cutters. Talked about uh, the parents getting divorced, being adopted, having Tourette syndrome, and they asked me what I thought about their feeling, uh, what I would say about their their feelings about these issues. So that book is a collection of their letters and my answers because I discovered that the answer I would give to a teenager with Tourette syndrome is not unlike an answer that I would give to a teenager who's having unsafe sex, which is not unlike an answer to a teenager that's bulimic. Because the message is the same. How can I help you to love yourself as you are? So it's a collection of letters and answers. And the teenagers that have read it call it their Bible. And I think it's the best thing I've ever written. And then I came up with this third book because I wanted to give the teenagers a chance to write to each other and speak to each other. The lecture CD is a collection of ten, uh, six lectures, ten minutes each. So you can hear me talk about certain topics, different topics. And it's a, it's a tearjerker. It's a lot of different beautiful things that I say. And the musical CD is a, a collection of 11 songs, one that I wrote uh, and 10 others that I, I cover. And the one that I wrote is called If I Grow Up. I put the poems from that first book to music. I took the lyrics that rhymed. And I put it to music and I wrote a song called If I Grow Up. So it's sort of a teenage anthem of what it feels like to hope that you get to find out what grown-ups find out in time if you earn it. So those, that's my anthology, hopefully still growing. <laughs> yeah, so you guys can find all, all those, uh, the CDs and all three of his books on scottfried.com. That's scott, F-R-I-E-D.com. I'm telling you, I'm going, I'm going to go buy every single thing that you got because I, I'm fascinated. I'm fascinated by it, and I think that the approach that you take in educating the kids I think it's so important because there's so many kids out there, teenagers, who are reading Twilight and Harry Potter, and they're living in this fantasy world, and in reality, they should really be reading books like this book here, Private Midnight, because these are books that are going to not only help them grow as individuals, but it's going to change their lives, and I think it's really important for people to know that. Thank you. Thank you so much. I, I actually don't want to dog Harry Potter, but I, I, I would like him to add this alongside on the side. On the my, goal in life, my goal in life is to have one of my books next to Harry Potter on a bookshelf. That would be great. I would have arrived when that happened. So that's fine with me. It's funny. So I know that, that, that everyone listening can go get the, your books at your website, but some people are like Barnes & Noble people. Are your books um, in bookstores? You can order them through Barnes & Noble. You go to the bookstore and they'll get in touch with me because they're self-published. So if you go directly through my website, you can get it and I can sign it and send it out instantly. But you can certainly go to any bookstore because it's registered in Books in Print and the Library of Congress so that it would 
it just have to be something you have to order. It would just take a little longer. So either one is fine. Someone in the chat room is asking where you're going to be speaking next. Do you have a, do you have a schedule on your website? or? Yeah, there's, there, on my website there's a calendar. Uh, it hasn't been updated uh, yet because the school year just started, but there's a few things that are up there. I think that the I was just in Buffalo a few days ago. The next place that I'm going to be speaking is um, is going to be probably uh, Montreal. I'm going to be in Montreal in November, October. I'll be in Washington D.C. I'll be in Houston. Uh, just go to my website. It'll be if it's not there, it'll be updated in a few days. And under scottfried.com under under calendar, it's uh, they'll they'll have the they'll have the, uh, the calendar. You can also send me an email, and I can just tell you if you really want to know. Do you ever come to Philly? Yeah, I did some work a few months ago at St. Joseph's University, St. Joe, at the Gay and Lesbian uh, Club. They brought me in, and uh, some high schools in the area, and there's a high school called Bryn Mawr, Bryn Mawr High School that brought me in, mm-hmm. and, um, and also, you know, University of Pennsylvania has brought me in a few times. And I don't I, know if you I can't remember. I, I I don't know how you remember all those things. Like I can't remember last week. I'm like, um, yeah, I was in another city. I don't really can't remember where it was. But I, you know, yeah, I just, just actually I I love what I do, and there's not a lot of things that I do remember. But I remember the kids who moved me, and I remember the right. places uh, where I was when it happened. So you know, there are things you remember, but this is just what's yeah, my yeah, brain. yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, I think I remember, it's funny. It's funny because if people, um, you know, that I work with, like, remind me of the venue, then I can remember the city. But I'm like, the city itself, I'm never actually in the city, like when I'm not working. So I'm like, I just have, I just have trouble remembering. I guess I'm just. I'm old, it does get old. embarrassing, and you probably know this too, Jack. Because now you're a celeb. People come up to me and they say, "Remember me? Remember you met me at this school?" And it's the faces of some. I mean, there are thousands and thousands of faces, right, and sometimes. Right. Sometimes they're just in an auditorium in an audience, and I meet them for a second when they come up to shake my hand or hug me at the end of the assembly, and I don't remember the face, but I remember that I was there at that school, but there right. were so many, and so I, I won't actually remember everything. But here's an answer to the earlier question. I'm looking at my calendar now. I'm going to be speaking in New Jersey on uh, the 5th of October. That's my next gig in uh, northern New Jersey, in Rockland. Orangetown, it's called Orangetown Jewish Center. That's Rockland, uh, Orangeburg, and uh, Rockland County. And uh, it's going to be on a Tuesday uh, in the evening. Cool. Right. Well, Scott, we are down to the last uh, minute, so I want to thank you for sitting in with us for the hour and telling us uh, your wonderful story and about your, your great books that you have out. People need to go to scottfried.com, F-R-I-E-D.com, and, and definitely check out his information. Go see him. Buy his books, buy his CDs. Scott, thank you so much for joining us this evening. I'm I'll see you, Jim. I'll see you, Jim. <laughs> Bye. Bye. And remember, folks, go to scottfried.com um, for his information. Uh, one thing I did want to remind everybody is that next week, uh, Jeremy will be returning, and he's going to be a married man. So congratulations. I know. They just got married uh, yesterday, which is very, very cool. Um, and um, our guest for next Sunday is going to be Jack, your friend, Paulo Del Mar, is coming back. I love, 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 love. She's amazing. Yeah, some stuff coming up, so uh, I know that's stuff that we can look forward to. And also on the 17th of October, I have um, a psychotherapist um, 
scheduled to come on and talk about her book. It's uh, Dr. Jacqueline Simon Gunn, and her book is In the Therapist's Chair. And uh, we're going to have one of her patients come on who is HIV positive, who's mentioned in the book, to talk about what it's like to go to psychotherapy and be HIV positive. So that's a good show you want to mark your calendars for and all that good stuff. Jack, it was great hanging out with you for the hour. I know. I'll and I'll be seeing you soon and here in Philly when you come to the H Walk, right? Right. And then I'm back on the 3rd, right? On the, like, yes. October 3rd. <laughs> yes, you'll be back here on the 3rd. I didn't remember that. I can remember, like, four things at once, so we're good. Right. <laughs> All right, everyone, thanks for tuning in. Find more information on Jack at jackmackenroth.com, myself and Michelle at pausedim.com. Have a great night, and thanks for tuning in. Bye. <laughs>